You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. my comfy shoes on. I'm ready. Well, we'll see, actually. I have my paperweights, some rocks. Okay, let me start this too. So, hey, church, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here and just share the word of God. If we haven't met before, my name is Audrey, and I have some family visiting today. So, thanks, fam, for being here. Yay! And um, been coming to reality, like Riz has said, for the last four years, um, I started setting up Kids Church, and I met my husband, Deddy, over here. So basically, the moral of that story was like, if you set up Kids Church, God sets you up, type of thing. Um, just kidding. That's not a biblical promise. Riz is like, oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, but yeah, it does make a good pun. So anyways, we celebrated our second wedding anniversary yesterday, and that was really fun. Lots is happening. And uh, as Pastor Riz says, I am eight months pregnant. So it puts me in the running for um, being the sweatiest uh, speaker at Reality Honolulu Award. I think I'm going to beat you, Riz. I'm not, I'm not even joking. I, I brought an extra pair of um, clothes after this. I'm like, oh, it's so hot. Um, but... And speaking of pregnancy, I feel like there are ways that we relate with people and this like solidarity uh, feeling that just kind of cultured into a hand signal. Like if you've ever seen motorcyclists on a Sunday, they're like this, and they pass another motorcyclist, they're like, they do one of these. It's not really like a loose chocolate, it's not really like a point, but it's just like a, oh, I see you, seeing me, seeing, you know, seeing us being cool type of thing. Uh, and Daddy has done this in the past, passing first-generation Tacoma owners of just like driving, oh, hey, you know, Lushaka, we're local boys, you know, type of feeling. Um, I feel like we need one for pregnant women of like, when I see another pregnant woman at the store, I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, we're like two aisles away, so we're not really talking, but we're just signaling each other, yeah, yeah, you, you got this. It's like the almost, almost, you're a queen, you're a queen, you know, type of thing. So those are my signals for, um, kind of how I relate with uh, pregnant women, but I'm going to start that. So let's get into the word. <laughs> so I was practicing this sermon. Daddy's like, okay, now get serious. I'm like, oh, serious. I'll be sincere, but I don't know if I'm going to be serious. So uh, you can turn your Bibles to Psalm 23, or if you got one of these on the handout, it's uh, right there in front of you. And then we're going to be talking about actually the back um, truths as well. But if you do have your Bibles, I'm going to be using the NIV version. Or if you have a Bible app, you can open that up. We're going to be in these next six verses, and we're going to read them a lot. And uh, I have a lot to add on to that. So shout out to Slide Crew in the back, Megan and Zach. <laughs> Woo! Because um, in honor of Psalm 23, I have 23 slides. Um, so hopefully, you know person back there doesn't get carpal tunnel. Alrighty. So as Pastor Riz has said, we've been uh, in a series of summer in the Psalms where we dive into multiple genres. 
And we equip ourselves with the language of prayer. So the title of today's sermon that was on the first slide was Powerful Trust. And so my personal desire today, though, is that as we learn more about God being the shepherd, we learn more about what it means to actually put our trust into something that is truly powerful. It's not just something that kind of feels good or could end up on a card or just kind of a little sheet on your mirror. It's something that you should feel like really equips you to handle a lot of life's uh, trauma and issues and situations. Oh, good thing for the rocks. Alrighty, here we go. So this is a Psalm of David. You probably can repeat this um, as well because it's so popular, but it's so good. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Wow, we can all go home. <laughs> We're going to talk about this, but even that one statement, it's just like, okay, done. You know, you do, we don't even have to read the other verses, technically. There's just, it's so good. But we will. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you enlighten us today? Would we be able to step into these truths? Would we be able to step into this time also where David is describing who you are as the good shepherd, who you are as the host, who you are, that you don't leave us alone and that you know us? Father, I pray that as we encounter you today, that we wouldn't leave the same that you're a type of God that is real and is with us. And so would the real and with us God really wreck us in a way that leaves us changed, that allows our hearts to be transformed. So we pray for open hearts and open minds today, and we pray that people would feel met in where they're at right now by this good shepherd. Amen. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Megan. So... There's different types of psalms that have been mentioned as varying genres, right? And I have a definition of genre, just to give us some context. Um, it says that genre is a category of artistic composition, as in music or literature, characterized by similarities in form, style, or subject matter. Now, nothing crazy profound about that definition, but something that's really interesting about Psalm 23 is it's actually kind of genre-bending or genre-defying, um, which I appreciate. And some biblical scholars say that because it doesn't fit into a narrowly defined category, it's hard to classify. However, they consider it a, quote, expansion of the affirmation of trust component of a song of lament. A lot of words there. Basically, as we move through different genres, this one we're putting under trust, and yet there's this idea of it's an expansion of this idea of a song of lament. And sometimes when we think of lament, we're like, okay, that just means sad, right? But Jack Hayford actually talks about the Psalms in general and says, and for each emotional need expressed by the worshiper, 
Psalms points us to an attribute of the Lord. So as we're thinking about these needs and how they're being expressed, we're actually asking Holy Spirit to reveal an attribute of the Lord and, how, and then kind of study how an attribute of the Lord is actually being revealed. So we're looking more for how to um, understand more about uh, the Lord through these verses. And what this meant to its original audience, we talked about this a little bit last week, or Pastor Riz did, but it is a way to kind of think about uh, songs and poetry, and we'll get into poetry, but it's uh, for use in congregational worship and private devotion. David wrote 73 of the 150. Moses's clans of Asaph, Korah, Solomon, Ethan, Heman, and Jeduthun. I actually didn't know that name before I read that there. If you're looking for a male kind of name, maybe you also are going to be pregnant um, and are looking for names, uh, and you want kind of a southern hipsterish biblical name, maybe Jaduthan is for you. But anyways, here we go. Uh, and 49 Anonymous, so lots of different authors. The purpose of the Psalms is often described as a model of how to praise God and pray to him. So in a way, we're talking about that idea of praising God, but also learning how to build that language of prayer, right? So uh, in understanding this also, we're going to talk about poetry. So I have a slide that kind of is going to give us a little bit of reference, but poetry is so exciting. Um, David and Abby were uh, leading us through parables, right? And a couple of weeks ago, Abby was like, who likes poetry? And I was like, boom. And then you're like, oh, well, OK, and then I'll be here. And then you realize there's only one other person. So then you're like, oh, I'll be here. But I really like poetry. And uh, maybe you're not kind of English trained or someone that kind of is an English enthusiast. But I really appreciate poetry. But there's this poetical lens that we want to really be aware of. So in the books of the Bible, there's the poetical section, right? And in that, uh, we want to be thinking about how we should understand and approach poetry, right? So I have two awesome quotes here. One of them is by my man, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. He says that painting is poetry that is seen rather than felt. And poetry is painting that is felt rather than seen. Naomi Shabab Nye, who's a contemporary poet and a, a kind of master curator of poetry, says that poetry has always devoted itself to bringing us into clearer focus, letting us feel or imagine faraway worlds with, from the inside, and notes that despite the age of a poem, they help to, quote, give a sense of human struggle and real people. So when we're approaching poetry, we're really thinking about that deep emotions of the human condition and the human struggle, even if it's from like way past when. And we're also kind of looking at that internal feeling, that painting. And to kind of bring us to that sense, we're going to be using two terms today. So I have definitions there, imagery and metaphor. Imagery is the mental images created by the author. And metaphor is a literary tool that compares two things. These are common ones. So most people know them. But you just want to be thinking about the comparison and also what kind of mental images are being conjured up. And with that, though, uh, this is the understanding of poetry based on Hebrew poetry. So Hebrew poetry, unlike English poetry, is not based on rhyme and rhythm. It actually, the major feature of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. So there's a lot of different types of parallelism. And before, you're like, wow, she's so smart. I just read this. So this is not me. This is Jack Hayford and the study uh, handbook, Bible, handout. So anyways, but because of that, we're going to be focusing on the third one there called synthetic parallelism. And synthetic 
doesn't mean necessarily, we have synthetic material, obviously, that's kind of like uh, mirrors something that's similar to real material, like plastic or whatever. So we're not talking about that type of synthetic. We're talking about synthesis, uh, that type of synthetic. Synthetic parallelism uses the second line to fill in or complete the thought of the first. So Psalms 4.8 actually kind of illustrates this. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So you can see how that completion of the thought happens um, by the second line there. So we're going to be focusing on uh, kind of that as we move forward. All righty. Let's go on to verses 1 through 4, now that we have some literary device tools and some understanding of how we kind of approach poetry. So first line that we talked about um, as being kind of a wow factor, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So other versions state, I shall not be in want. And why this is so powerful is that David is bringing this powerful metaphor kind of to the forefront of our uh, understanding. And people, Hebrew people would have fully understood this. This was a role that was really common in their society, but we're kind of removed from it. But we do have this kind of um, understanding of those uh, kind of common images of Jesus as the shepherd. So I'll flip over to that slide. Thank you, Megan. Um, and so we have this really comforting, awesome idea of the Lord being the good shepherd. And we'll talk about this. He talks about Jesus being the, uh, the good shepherd in John. But um, with that, I just want to point out that these images are truly incredible when it comes to comfort and peace and what you need. And yet I think they actually lack the power that David is actually saying when he says, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Because we're going to talk about that power piece there. But I think it's an amazing image, but I think it's limited if it's just there. Also, I would like to note the background of the left picture kind of looks like that Walmart background in the 80s and 90s. Anyone else take pictures of Walmart? It's the same background. Um, I don't know. I have pictures, but I was like, no, we, we need to burn those pictures. Some people are like, oh, I know those pictures. No, those pictures shouldn't be ever found. But um, as we kind of talk about this, the parallel that David is bringing is really powerful because for much of his life, he's desperately fleeing people trying to kill him. And he is constantly in need. Like we talk about King David and kind of his uh, rule and those years, but there's a lot of years where he's on the hunt or he's been on the hunt uh, from people trying to kill him, right? So there's this equation that he is building that helps us kind of think about this. When the Lord is your shepherd, you lack nothing. And that equation in and of itself is so powerful because it's like this synthetic parallelism that like that completes the, the second line completes the thought of the first, right? Because of this, therefore this. And so this is truly kind of where the anchor for where we're going to be reading the next couple of um, verses. Um, I don't know if we could kind of abbreviate this and make it a sticker or something. Maybe Mono, we could do a collab or something. Um, maybe he's great and I does like a, you know, collab with that. Anyways, but this kind of equation starts off with the understanding also of where you should be thinking. So oftentimes when we think of our needs or whatever, it's based on like your needs, where you're at, all this kind of understanding. It's not based on where the Father is or where God is. We kind of don't get to that place um, often. Or we easily get to a place where it's not uh, where our perspective is. So 
If we pause for a moment and think about this metaphor also though, and we think about all of our needs being fulfilled, like if someone were to ask you, you know, how could you satisfy all of your needs or any of that nature, uh, I think it would be hard for us because we often have needs mixed in with wants and it's a hard kind of question. You have your like immediate kind of things in front of you, sometimes problems or issues are like, oh, if this was kind of fixed or whatever, then whatever, but all of your needs is pretty crazy. It's a pretty crazy statement. So I want to bring up some um, psychology because in mid-class America, our needs uh, are often about upward mobility and an understanding of, you know, an idea of playing hard, working hard, and then kind of getting what we deserve. And one quote is that we represent the top 1% that holds over 45% of the globe's wealth. So if you think you're like not, you're like, oh, but that's not me. If you drive a car, own a computer, and have more than one pair of shoes, that puts you in that top 1%, which is pretty crazy. So thinking about like human needs and satisfying our needs, I want to um, kind of talk about some psychology here. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And Abraham Maslow was an American psychologist and developed this classification or categorization of needs in the 1940s and 70s. And he refers to it as, uh, or it's been kind of popularized as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You'll see this pyramid. And it's a part of motivational psychology, it's that branch, um, that helps describe human needs and behavior according to uh, driving needs. And you may be like, listen, I came to listen to the Bible today. What is this? This is a pyramid scheme? It's not a pyramid scheme. Um, you would get it in like Psych 101 or whatnot, but it's a really great discussion point, and I talked to the Lord, and he's not mad. So in thinking through this, we're going to look at this. Uh, why bring this up? Well, he proposed this idea of needs, and if you look at the slide, you'll see that it starts with basic needs, then it goes to psychological needs, and then it goes to self-fulfillment needs. And it breaks that down further in physiological needs like food, water, warmth, rest, safety needs, so security, safety, belongingness and love needs, so that relational aspect, esteem needs, and then self-actualization. And self-actualization in Maslow's theory is kind of like the pinnacle of where you would hope and want to be. That's like the idea of living like an ultimate kind of fulfilled life. And there's healthy criticism that picks at his methodology of actually kind of coming up with this. But there's a lot of health and social and educational fields that still use this to actually understand human needs. And because his theory says that like, hey, listen, you have to fulfill the base needs, at least in part, before you go on to the next ones. So if you're like in war or in famine or you feel like your immediate safety is being jeopardized, you're not going to be thinking about living to your greatest potential or like the creative part of your brain is like shut off because your brain is in fight or flight, right? So it's kind of basically what he's talking about. And in a worldview without Jesus and according to like your own hustle, this makes a lot of sense. You're like, hey, yeah, I, I won't be able to kind of fulfill the top if, I'm, if my base needs aren't getting met. And yet, according to this psalm, it kind of just turns it on its head. And you'll see how uh, Jesus and or this good shepherd metaphor really allows a different understanding of needs. So remember that quote by Jack Hayford. I'm going to read it. It's not up on the slides. But we have kind of needs there that we're going to talk about that talks about each emotional need as that need is expressed 
uh, Psalms points us to an attribute of the Lord. So that's really true in a lot of Psalms. And in this Psalm, it's like the Lord being the shepherd, remember that equation, means that you lack nothing or whatever. Needs are like, there are no needs, right? It's like this understanding of he starts at the very, very top of this pyramid. And I would like to suggest also that this pyramid, um, according to Maslow's theory, he estimated that only 2% of the entire population would ever get to this idea. So kind of bleak, right? We're like, being fulfilled, only 2%, right? But the Lord comes in and he's like, I am the good shepherd, right? David's talking about he is not just a shepherd, he's my shepherd. Um, you lack nothing, which is crazy. So right then and there, it kind of eliminates this idea of uh, this pyramid of like this kind of hustle of trying to desperately get there. The Lord starts there, which is just pretty incredible, I think. But as kind of the Lord's power is being revealed, we're thinking about uh, how also the perspective of him fulfilling our needs allows us to see from his perspective, right? So we have that idea of basic, I have this kind of in parentheses if you can't see it, but we have basic needs and psychological needs that are kind of talked about in uh, Psalm 23, more basic needs. And then the end talks about that we'll kind of get to the self-fulfillment needs despite the threat of base needs being jeopardized. So it has nothing to do with like, you know, we're going to talk about this, but like enemies being in the, his presence or it has nothing to do with being in the darkest valley and has everything to do with who the Lord is. That's a good word. Okay, so check time. Okay, we've done one verse. Moving on. <laughs> Don't worry, the next half, that was like the main anchor, so that was like 80%, maybe 60%. Okay, so he makes, us, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. So we're thinking about this idea. As this is up on the screen, you can think about the attributes of God being revealed, right? The presence of God that refreshes and revives your soul. He guides me along paths for his namesake. He guides you to prosperous paths and includes you in his glory. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, some translations read the valley of the shadow of death, right? Even though I may be amidst great trial and tri tribulation, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So that comfort there, there's a lot of tone and voice within what uh, this is happening here. There's my shepherd, he leads me, my soul, you are with me, they comfort me. There's this idea of a personal connection that's happening here that I think why this psalm is so popular. And in thinking about that, uh, that's why it's so popular too, we're going to move on to the gracious host metaphor. So those were lines one through four, and now we're moving on to five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, if we were to kind of just pause and go on a little bit of a rabbit trail here. So we're talking about figurative language, right? So the, the host metaphor is happening, and then the imagery. So we're thinking about imagery of the first line, right? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, this is not like an enemies when it comes to like maybe our enemies of like that pesky neighbor or someone that just like really did you wrong and you're like hate them. David's enemies are like R-rated enemies, right? These people want to like 
get you, they want to tear you apart, they want to like gut you. This is the level of brutality is pretty crazy, and I think it's something that um, we're pretty removed from, actually, as a society, and just thinking about kind of this idea of David's enemies. It's it's the real business, right? Except that I do have uh, something a little bit to make fun of here, that, uh, you know, when it comes to David's enemies being, like, brutal and we're removed from it, we do sing a song, like, all the time that has this, that I'm like, what? Does anyone know this one? So we have the first line in that song. This is Defender um, by Rita Springer, I think, is the one who sang it, and then Francesca Battistrelli, I don't know how to pronounce her name, sorry, um, is the one who popularized this, right? The you go before I know that you've even gone to win my war. Amazing, right? The Lord fights our battles. So good. Biblical, really awesome, right? Second line. You come back with the head of my enemy. What? Does anybody else in worship like, what? That's, that's like Old Testament brutality, right? I mean, like, imagine if this ended up in our speech, like, you know, the Lord fights your battles, whatever. It's just like, yeah, I just pray for my sister in Christ here that the Lord would come back with that decapitated, bloody head of her enemy. Amen, right? It'd just be weird. Like, imagery, thinking about that. I don't know. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of, like, decapitated heads and stuff. I'm kind of like, you know what? Just fight my enemy. Tell me they're dead. Don't bring me the head, though. Right? It's, anyways. I had to kind of pick, every time I sing that song, I'm like, anybody else, like, thinking about a decapitated bloody head? This is kind of crazy. But um, all that to say that David's enemies were no kind of, like, precious moments factor here. Like, sometimes when we think about David and precious moments, we have this, like, oh, kind of, like, shepherd, he tends a sheep, whatever. Um, he's, he's suggesting something more than precious, right? He's suggesting something powerful because his enemies are real. The threat of his enemies are real. This is no like Hurricane Lane, if you've been here, where it's like, oh my gosh, and then it's nothing. It's no like missiles are coming to you, just kidding, wrong button, right? It's real. It's real enemies, real threat, right? So um, when he talks about that, it means that actually line four even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, is reiterated actually in Psalm 27.1. That phrase, I will fear no evil, is repeated so many times in Scripture uh, in multiple different ways. And this one reads, Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So regardless of enemies, like, you can have enemies at your table. The presence of enemies is really, really low, as in, like, not even a, a threat. And we know that now David's enemies are, you know, mucho threat zone, right? So because of that, it's just reiterating who God is. So from the perspective of God, if you keep kind of putting yourself in that perspective of the good shepherd, you understand the rest of um, the psalm in a different light. So going back before, uh, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The imagery of kind of abundance and joy and blessing. There's just this richness. And sometimes I feel like sometimes like in life we kind of pray from the perspective of like, God, if you can hear me, would you all this kind of, you know, would you meet me, all this kind of stuff. Well, here, he anoints 
his head with oil, his cup overflows. He's coming from a place of overflowing. It's not like the Lord poured until it was halfway, and then he said, see it as, you know, halfway full, not empty, right? He poured it until it's overflowing. So it's this imagery of overflowing kind of joy and blessing, despite kind of what's happening, the situation. Last line, this is verse uh, 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then the New Living Translation actually says, Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. One biblical scholar talks about how David constantly, you know, is where he's at, which is, you know, running from a lot of these enemies, right? So he's constantly talking about that. And yet he juxtaposes that idea with an idea of what is pursuing him is not his enemies, but it's the Lord's goodness and his love. And that perspective is pretty ground-shaking when it comes to also Maslow's uh, pyramid. And when you think about that kind of peak experience of Maslow's pyramid of like living kind of an ultimate life of your greatest potential. Um, it's, it's the 2% in his understanding, right? 2% people make it, whereas the Lord starts there. And then also that pyramid is not just a pyramid. It's like the self-fulfillment, the idea of like who you are and fulfilling the promise of who God has made you to be is pursuing you, which is pretty crazy. And so from that perspective, we can get in an in a attitude of receiving, of being like, when I know who the good shepherd is, I know that I can receive good things. I know that I can receive love from a place that God just doesn't want to kind of give me just a little bit. He wants to overflow my cup and he wants to uh, actually pursue me with these things. So I hope we leave today also kind of filled with that understanding. This equation that we kind of keep talking about also in you know, that the Lord is a good shepherd, therefore you lack nothing, is reiterated also in the New Testament. So I mentioned this before, but John 14, or sorry, 10, 14 through 15, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So again, we have this powerful metaphor, and yet now we know also that just laying your life down for the sheep He had to go through immense pain and unimaginable, I don't know, brutality when it comes to his death, right? And also just the feeling of, you know, those around him, closest to him, abandoning him. The the emotional and the physical is pretty crazy. But also it brings us back to the purpose of Jesus coming, that um, as he connects us with the Father, he knows his Father, and his Father knows him, and he's connecting you to the Father as well. This continues on with thinking about like the contentment, the factor of like, okay, I lack nothing. Another way of saying that is like a contentment in God fulfilling your needs. So this powerful trust metaphor. Hebrews 13.5 says that uh, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So again, we have that understanding kind of like what David said uh, about this idea of being in the presence of his enemies. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter what you're facing. Uh, When the Lord is your shepherd um, and he never leaves you, there's an understanding that that kind of just takes its uh, place, which is really, really low compared to the Lord. 
And speaking of David, thank you, David and Abby, for um, preparing for the parables. Because as I was uh, listening to David speak last Tuesday, I wrote down in my kind of preaching notes, like, hey, ideas of contentment. We want to bring in the New Testament. And then uh, David is preaching on um, Tuesday. He's like, ideas of contentment. Here we are. I'm like, yes, did some homework for me. So he also found Philippians. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention Philippians too. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I'm not saying this because I am need. This is Paul speaking to the Philippians. For I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Obviously, another really powerful, popular verse about this, but this is in reference to also Paul being in trials and tribulation, right? So it's in the context of not just like, you know, I want to kind of achieve this greatest potential of myself. I'm going to work up this American dream kind of mentality of getting somewhere with my life. It's from the understanding that despite the circumstances of what's happening around you, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, but also it's the understanding that has to be from the perspective of uh, the good shepherd or God being who he is because that means you lack nothing, right? And just want to bring in verse 2 one more time as we kind of are ending here. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes, or other versions say, restores my soul. The presence of God that refreshes and revives your soul. So the Hebrew here is actually shuv, uh, and it's used 391 times to mean return, and 39 times in the Bible to mean restore. And with that, I just want to kind of comment that I feel like the Lord is restoring and allowing this returning back to understanding who God really is. He's not just someone that is kind of in the distant um, kind of, I don't know, of your past or kind of in the distance where you can kind of see him or whatever. He's someone who is your good shepherd. And with that understanding, um, that restoring and that returning or whatnot, I want to kind of mention a book. John Mark Comer wrote The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and he opens with mentioning Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me all who, you who, oh sorry, come to me, comma, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the kind of imagery reminds me of that like good shepherd picture with the understanding obviously of power of like what it really means to satisfy your needs. And in his chapter, Hurry, the Great Enemy of Spiritual Life, he ends with saying, my question is simple. What is all this distraction, addiction, and pace of life doing to our souls? So it's this understanding of hurry where he talks about, and he, he outlines what those kind of distractions are, what this addiction is. I really relate with this just in being, um, you know, having... Being a teacher, it's really hard not to have hustle culture and hustle just, I mean, it's just really normalized um, in what you do. And he kind of emphasizes this, um, talking about 10 symptoms of hurry sickness. So I have those up on the screen. 
I'm going to let you spend about 15 seconds reading those. So we have irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, workaholism or just nonstop activity, emotional numbness, out of order priorities, lack of care for your body, escapist behaviors, slippage of spiritual disciplines, and isolation. And he goes through this a lot. And if you're like, listen, I can't read a book, I'm really busy. Well, that's kind of ironic. But. <laughs> there is a 45-minute podcast where he kind of goes over and highlights a lot of this, and that's John Mark Comer, and he talks about Jesus and the lonely place, silence and solitude. So actually, if you were to like go even deeper into this psalm, you would look at specific references to rest, and rest can actually translate silence. And so he goes through a lot of those things. It's just so good. But I want to do some application And in thinking about kind of John Mark Comer's idea of hurry and stuff, I think that um, this happens in our culture a lot, so I wanted to bring that up. But I also want to kind of address where you're at. So do a little bit of a kind of like, where am I right now? And as we think about this, uh, I think that in this time and age, whether you consider it, you know, post-pandemic or during pandemic or however you kind of want to talk about it, um, fear and worry are definitely something that plague us. So if you're, maybe you are plagued by fear and worry because there's this, this constant onslaught of fear and worry via the news and via kind of what's happening. There's a lot of real life situations, obviously, that validate some of those things. But maybe you're weary. So you have hurry sickness and you need rest for your body and your spirit and soul. You can kind of resonate with that. Maybe you feel isolated or distant. You feel far from God. And by God, I'm talking about the triune kind of God, right? The Trinity. So Jesus, Holy Spirit, and Father. So maybe you can be like, well, I'm close to this kind of personhood of the Trinity, but not this person. Uh, so maybe the Lord wants to meet you there. Restless. You're restless and maybe just unsatisfied with life and the pursuit of happiness apart from God. Maybe you're like, oh, shoot, that Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever, I'm totally motivated by that hustle culture. And maybe it's something I need to kind of turn from or just kind of reevaluate. Or maybe you're just hungry for more. You want more powerful trust in more areas of your life. You want the trust that means that when you understand who God is, you lack nothing. I think that's a really hard thing to actually say, like, oh, yeah, I, I claim that, and then I actually live that way, right? So we're going to go into our encounter time, so um, I'll invite the worship team up. And in these two weeks that we have kind of done this, we have kind of prompted you to kind of apply something that we've been talking about. So that language of prayer, right? And if you look on the back side of your Psalm 23, if you did get one of these, this is going to be um, here to help you because this screen will be kind of leaving. But I want you to kind of get with someone else, um, maybe groups of like one to two, um, up to your kind of comfortability. But in those groups, I want you to really identify where you're at or where maybe this sermon 
has touched you where you're like, ah, oh, it's the hurry sickness. Or maybe it, I feel isolated and distant from God. Or maybe I start with an understanding that I have to constantly strive and make it happen in my life. Like, God is awesome. He can maybe bless me sometimes, but ultimately it's up to me. So maybe it's a reevaluation of that idea. Um, and as you kind of tell that person and they share with you or kind of the two people in your group, you let that person share. I want you to choose uh, one of these or four of these or however many you want. And I want you to really step into and claim this for your lives. So these truths. And hopefully you kind of take this and as you go about your week and whatnot and the Lord, Holy Spirit kind of prompts you and whatnot, you can think about um, claiming these over your life, right? So the first two songs we're going to be doing this where you share, you know, where you're at with the other people, and then you choose one of these and you claim it. So Jesus being the good shepherd who brought you home, called you family, and restored us with our loving and good heavenly Father. Another reiteration of this is the Psalm 23, obviously. The Lord restores your soul. He guides you. He protects you. He comforts you and blesses you. He gives your soul rest, and he satisfies your every need. This is despite circumstance or situation. Three is true contentment and ultimate fulfillment is met by God. And four is you do not have to fear because he will never leave you or forsake you. And there's the verses that we got those truths from at the bottom there. So I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to release you into getting with those one to two people. Tell them where you're at. Tell them kind of, um, you know, what you need most. And then start uh, claiming these things over you for the next two songs. Father, thank you for being so good. Thank you for sending your son to be our good shepherd. Thank you that the good shepherd is not just someone who is a good image that brings us kind of comfort and a, a comforting idea, but is a powerful force in our life in which we can expect goodness and love to be pursuing us. I ask, Lord, in this time that you would open hearts to really see kind of where people need to be met by you, that they would feel encountered by you, that they would feel met by you and loved by you. And then it would leave them to an understanding of that perspective of where you are, God, that we wouldn't start from the perspective of hustle and striving and of trying to kind of reach this pinnacle of potential, but we'd start from an understanding of who you are and how we lack nothing. Amen.